Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. Welcome back to the Gottesdienst crowd. This is Jason Broughton. Today we have back with us Dave Peterson. Welcome back, Dave. Thank you. So we are looking at the gospel reading for the 18th Sunday after Trinity. It comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 to 46. I'll read that in the English Standard Version. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. All right. uh, Other than the fact that uh, people are coming out against him really hard now, um, what's the context? How did Jesus silence the Sadducees? And why is that important? Well, it's the one-two punch. So, I mean, this is is the end, right? We We go right from here to you know, the, the woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, and then, you know, complaining about Jerusalem and a few other warnings, and then it's Holy Week. So mm-hmm. th- this is really the, the last of his teaching ministry. He silences the Sadducees with the question about the resurrection, that uh, God is the God of the living, and that mm-hmm. Isaac, Jacob, and, uh, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive, that they live. So, Right, they're they're shut up by that, and then the Pharisees are shut up by this, and that's it, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, so so. I, so in the context, like, um, is it too much to read into this that uh, our Lord sees that he's pushing towards Jerusalem? I mean, he knows where he's headed, he knows what he's going to endure, and and he doesn't, as you said pull any punches here. Like he doesn't try to uh, be winsome. He doesn't try to, well, you know, if I can get these guys on my side, maybe I can do this or that. He just states it as it is. Do you think there's anything here, perhaps in our day, um, you know, as we push towards the end, where where we should be a bit more bold in our um, articulation of what at least Lutherans believe God is saying and what he has done, not only to the world, but to other Christians as well. Yeah. I mean, really, he humiliates them here, (laughs) both sets, because, you know, he just— he just exposes them for their wickedness and their their complete unwillingness to submit to Holy Scripture, right? I mean, the 
the, the common people. In fact, let's look at uh, the parallel in Mark is interesting because it has quite, it's different, uh, quite a bit different, um, quite a bit nicer to the guy that asked the question. So where is that? Let me find it. Mark, did you, uh, Mark 34, uh, 1234 is the kind of the key passage, but you have the same thing, the, 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 except that the scribes produced in a nice way. It's uh, verse 28, then one of the scribes came, having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, mm. which is the first commandment of all. So it doesn't have that same malicious character. And then uh, in the middle of it, Jesus answers the same way, and then verse 32, so the scribe says, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, when Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then, it, and then it follows exactly again with who is the who is the son of day or who is the Christ whose son is he? So, yeah, but it, they there is these each end differently because it was after Mark records that after Jesus said to the scribe, "You are not far from the kingdom of God," that after that no one dared to ask him any more questions. Not after his oh, question to right. uh, the people, because the the uh, Jesus' yeah. question about David is to more people and their response is the great throng heard him gladly. Yeah, well that's where I was going with that. The the, the common people do recognize the wisdom the, they they recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit in the mm. scripture and the consistency there. I think um but yeah, you're right. That is he does the 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 silence comes early in Mark. Well, I mean, I was just thinking it was mainly a proof that the people understood that their leaders were deceptive and they weren't really they weren't sincere. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's. So is there a sense where uh, there's a sharp distinction between, uh, I don't want to say the elites, but perhaps like the theologically astute and the common people? You mentioned the common people, but yeah. are the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are they looking to have like an ivory tower type discussion that... Uh, you know, just kind of tickles their brains and, and not really see how this is in and of itself, as you know, Robert Preusser would, would say, that doctrine is life. They just see it as kind of something yeah. to discuss and, uh, again, tickle their brains and not something that actually is immediately applicable. Right. I'm, I don't hear... I don't know. There, there are other places uh, for sure where, where I think that's the case, where they're just like, "Hey, this will be fun. Let's let's have a little, you know, back and forth and um, and the like." Here, I'm not sure. I mean, as it's presented in Matthew, it seems as though they think they're going to get a slam dunk. You know, it's sort of like asking, you know, uh, about paying taxes to Caesar. Uh, there's no way he's going to answer this in a way that we can't dispute and show ourselves superior. And then he just answers so well mm-hmm. and so obviously that, that they can't. Uh, but it could be that here too, right? That the what the lawyer wants to do is, you know, have a fun debate that ultimately doesn't really have any consequences for right. life. Right. Let, let's just, you know, keep it, keep it at that level. And I think, you know, this is still a temptation for us. Well, I was just going to uh, ask you there is this, about yeah. that. So what's the warning to the clergy regarding this? 
Oh, I think that what can happen is that we can like theology as a beautiful system. We can like the ideas of these things. They're fun to talk about, but we're scared to put them into practice because of how they might be received or mm-hmm. how we, or how we might be perceived. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we, we, we might love to talk in an abstract way about, I don't, I mean, just name it, you know, <laughs> I don't know, birth control, you know, and the, the goodness of life and procreation and what God does in the marriage bed. Uh, you know, it's sort of nice to keep that way, but then we're scared to really teach this. If, if we try to apply this or people try to apply this to their lives, it makes us nervous. Right. They're going to, you know, somehow become legalists or it's going to come back on us in some way. You know, we're, I I think that, I think we're guilty of that a lot. Um, I think that, I mean, I know this is easy, you know, low hanging fruit, but I'll do it anyway. I mean, I think this is even a greater temptation if you live in the academic world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I mean, just because it's greater there doesn't mean that we've never fallen for it ourselves. Right. Right. No, yeah, you know we can yeah, yeah. There, there is a temptation for us all to treat the doctrines of God as, you know, academic material and not life itself yeah. and intellectual playthings. Yeah, and it's like talking about conspiracy theories. You know, it's just fun. It doesn't really. Yeah, yeah, and it should be fun. That we're not trying to make it sound like I mean, talking about the things <laughs> of God should be fun, right? But. Um, it is fun. It yeah. is fun, right. But if it's only kind of at that level and never kind of takes root to, um, well, I mean, that it not only changes the way we think and believe, but actually act, that those yeah. things are connected. I, so this, I wasn't g- going to talk about this, but this remind. I've been thinking for about, I don't know, nine months, maybe a year now, I've been wondering if what part of what's wrong with us as a cult, as the Missouri Synod, um, or as you know, kind of the clergy, the ministerium of the Missouri Synod. I wonder if what's wrong with us is the heritage of disputation. And so, I mean, obviously, you know, this is a has great weight in the history of Lutheranism, where Lutherans would actually get together and debate theology in a very formal way, and their their thinking became much more precise, their doctrine more clear, and forced to defend things from the Bible. Right? This was good. At the same time, right? So I, I don't, I don't want to dismiss it. I wish we had more of it. I, I really do. At the same time, though, I wonder if this disputation kind of culture created in us an idea that we're trying to win. Like the point of these debates is who wins, and rather than being a, a conversation where we modify our opinions in response to what the other person says, right? I mean, that we actually grow together, that we converse, that mm. we change. Um, I wonder if this kind of, you know, disputation became like college debate and, you know, it's like, it's as though we're doing this as a zero sum game instead of collegially. Well, I think you might be onto something a bit, but I I also think we need to just modify what we mean by win. We need to reframe that. Um, You know, I teach logic for Wittenberg Academy you know, one of the first things that we go through is that you learn logic not so that you can beat an opponent in an argument. You learn logic right. so you can find the truth. The so, best argument. Yeah, right. So if if you modify what you mean by win, which is arriving at the truth, drawing conclusions that are truthful, um, then then fine. I mean, I don't want to lose. 
right? <laughs> I want to, I want to win it. <laughs> and often we end up, um, this is great book by, uh, an FBI negotiator called never split the difference. And, and, oh, yeah. and, and he, he talks about how, you know, even in his field where he's negotiating with real bad actors, he has to not think of them as the enemy, but the situation as the enemy. Um, and I think if we did a little more of that, thinking like our situation where we're discussing with people is the enemy and we need to arrive at the truth, then maybe we could, maybe we can get a little bit further, but you know, um, there's, there's always personalities involved and sometimes it can be difficult to rein in your emotions and you have to take that into account. And so, yeah, I want to win, but I want to win by arriving at the truth. Right. I don't, I don't want to be a loser. (laughs) It's not a zero sum deal, right? We, We can both win. We can win together. I know this sounds very flaky, but I mean, I think that we, we come at it. Well, I mean, right, because of emotions, because of the fallen flesh, ego, you know, um, we're not coming at it seeking the truth, we're coming at it seeking glory. Yeah. And, and, you know, we're not coming at it with actual affection for our opponents. Um, Well, so I mean, just all of that, I think. In our day that, you know, that can also be used to never do anything or say anything. Oh, I, I, I know, I know. And, and so I, I'm we, in we favor of disputation. <laughs> yeah, I, we have to, we have to recognize that, you know, there are some, there are some actual bad actors out there and there are people who have, you know, no desire to learn wisdom and, right. and, and they need to be treated as the fools they are, as the Proverbs teach us. And we have to weigh whether or not this is an occasion where we respond to the fool or not respond, depending on who will be affected by what the fool is saying. Yeah. Well, okay. So back to the text. I mean, I think in Matthew's gospel, if you didn't read Mark, this guy's a bad actor, you know, and the term of respect, which I, I, I thought it, what does it say in Greek? Is it didaskalos or is it rabbi? I can't remember. I thought it was rabbi. Anyway, he calls him teacher, right? Yeah, it teacher. is Didascala. Okay, so he just he calls him teacher, right? This this he's he's not really serious, right? He's not he's not asking this question to learn. Uh, you know, he he's going to judge. I mean, it, it, at best, this is a test to see if Jesus passes mustard by his standard, right? Mm. So, and, and I mean, again, I think that that exactly what you said that. We do face this in this world sometimes, uh, you know, hostile forces that are not sincere. I mean, I mean, my goodness, we've all had millions of these conversations. Unfortunately, you know, the the sort of hostile grandchild of one of your members who had a Bible class at you know a, a Bible course at college, you know, thinks he knows things, mm-hmm. you know, who comes in just to you know, because he thinks he can outwit you and smart you and show how stupid you are. And he's not interested in learning, right? So, I mean, that sort of thing, you know, it's often from the immature, but uh, that's what this is. And and you're right. I think we need to recognize that. And, uh, you know, the other, so the other thing with this though, right? So Jesus does humiliate them, right? Because they're just shown to be fools that don't care about scripture, but they're only humiliated in front of the church, I mean, that is to say only believers would find, you know, them sort of uh, distasteful because Jesus doesn't really make a coherent argument according to the arguments of the world. 
you know, uh, you know, he just simply, what's the greatest commandment? He just states it. And then he makes this uh, application that this is what the whole Old Testament, right? This is what the Holy Scripture, the law and the prophets are all about. But that's a, you know, there's no evidence given, right? Uh, well, I mean, this he's is quoting a, the Bible. Well, he's quoting the Bible in terms of the, the two commandments that he picked yeah. happen to be in the Bible. But I mean, the Bible doesn't say this is the greatest commandment. And he doesn't spend any time kind of explaining himself. So he, he just sort of states it. And then I think it's even worse than the Christology session in a sense, right? He, he just, you know, the, the full on assumption is that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. It can't, there's no historical context for Psalm 110. Um, the way that I mean, that say, assumes that they don't know a historical context. And I don't know if we can assume that. No, I, I mean, oh, I think we can. The, you think we yeah, can they, assume they that he's just plucking this out of nowhere? No, no. I think we can. I think it's recognized that Psalm 110 is a supernatural text that does not refer to a particular right. historic event. Uh, well, that's not. That's a. That's a faith statement. That's yeah. what I mean. This, these 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 arguments are only persuasive to people of faith. I, I mean, if I say to you, right, if, if, in other words, if, you know, some Darwinist comes to me and says, why do you believe in God? And I say, because the Bible says so. I mean, he's like, well, that's not good enough. Well, sure. Right. That's not a person. Yeah. That, so, so this is what I mean. So when they're humiliated, uh, their humiliation is not in terms of showing them to be stupid the way the, ju- the world judges stupidity. Hmm. It's only showing them to be foolish in that they reject the word of God. Yeah. Do you think that, that these that, are rejections, the or do you think it's just like they got stumped and they don't know what to do about it? Like, no. What if you what if you assume that the Pharisees are like, hey, um, uh, Jesus just silenced the Sadducees, and we totally agree that they needed to be silenced because they're crazy on this, and now they're trying to <laughs> test the waters to see, you know, is he just like you know a co belligerent or is he actually an ally? No, you're you got it. You got it wrong. There, they, this is like Herod and uh, uh, Pontius Pilate. They they become friends. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are the belligerents, and they are they're allies um, against Jesus. I, I don't think that they're taking any joy in the defeat of the the Sadducees in this. I mean, they would like to be the ones that win, but. Um, no, I think they reject this. They reject the word, uh, particularly, I mean, maybe they're willing to accept in some sense that this answer of the greatest commandments, a good answer. Um, but, but then in the next part, I mean, that, that's just it, right? He, and I, th- I think the progression is important, that they ask a question about the law, which is completely appropriate and deserves an answer. And Jesus gives a very theological answer, not just saying this is the best commandment, but saying that the whole, uh, that the will of God's, the revealed will of God is based completely upon this law. Uh, and then, you know, but he moves them to, what do you think of the Christ? Mm. All right, let's get to what's really at stake here and what's really going on. And, and they recognize that he's talking about himself. Okay. Right. So and and so you know this is uh, you ask a law question and I want to talk about Jesus. N- no, I don't think it's not quite that. I mean, he, they ask a law question and he answers the law question. Mm-hmm. Right. 
I mean, he, he doesn't just say, oh, that's an inferior question. We don't talk about such things, right? The law has no application <laughs> to the life of the believer. Um, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, no, he's, he's totally, he absolutely engages. Because when they ask, when they ask, what is the great commandment in the law? They're asking, what is God's will? What is his eternal will? What has he said about himself and uh, his relationship to us and ours to him and, and, and what this is? So here's, here's the way we got we to gotta reframe the Ten Commandments a little bit. Uh, if we take the Ten Commandments within the context of Exodus 20, really, I'm not just being cute here. I'm dead serious. That is actually a constitutional monarchy uh, because the first word is, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of, or out of uh, the house of bondage, or the land of bondage, whatever it is, right? So the point there is that God is establishing His family or His kingdom. He's the king; they're the citizens. He's the father; they're the children. They are most explicitly not slaves. So the sorts of laws that you have for slaves are radically different than the sorts of rules that you have for the household of faith, and. It has to do with this, right? That God, like, like I love my favorite, my favorite law in the American South during the, you know, the uh, pre-war era for slaves is you can't take, teach slaves to read. Not, not because, but, but because I love that because it shows the goodness and the power of reading, right? That if slaves read, they're going to know about the outside world. They're going to be more easily, it's going to be easier for them to escape, right? All this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you own slaves, you're afraid of them. You have to be, right? Because they could rise up and kill you. I mean, that the Spartans are afraid of that. The Romans are afraid of that. The Americans are afraid of that as, you know, they should be. So, so the laws of slavery and how and what slaves are allowed to do and not allowed to do have to do with keeping them in slavery, and the uh, they're not necessarily also they're not explained to the slave. You don't tell the slave why you won't teach him to read and you don't want him to read. But then, but then if you think about in contrast to that, right, the rules for your children, right, it's the exact opposite. They have to learn to read. Why? Because you're not trying to keep them oppressed and under your thumb. You're trying to prepare them for their inheritance. I mean, you have to think in an agrarian way, right? I have children to work on my farm and to make my farm bigger and stronger and safer and to grow it. And I'm going to pass it on to them and they need to learn to read so that they can be, they can do this, right? So, the law, right? I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the house of bondage. I'm the king. I'm your God. This is the first word. Now, here's the way that your your inheritance is acted out already now in this goodness according to my order and how your inheritance is safeguarded and protected and you are prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Th- that's really a different way than I think we normally talk about it. Of course, there's still threats in the law. There's still accusations in the law and things to be taught. But the relationship that we stand as those delivered out of bondage to the law is different than slaves. I mean, except for the fact that Exodus uses this great play on words, right? Yeah. That, you know, they're slaves in Egypt and they want, uh, God wants to bring them out into the desert so that they can be slaves to him, serve him. The word is to right. be enslaved. So um, it seems as though, I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but he's a, establishing a different kind of slavery there. 
right? He's establishing yeah. a different kind of service and a different relationship with the head of that. You know, they're enslaved yeah. right now to the wrong things and they need to be enslaved to the right things. Right. And Paul plays with that too. Yeah. But I think, but but I think it's fair to say that the dominant way that the Holy Scriptures speak is familial, right? Yeah. Well, not, he's not the, as the slaves of God, the children of God, and the husband, and right. Those, those are the so. There's aspects of this which can be can, can also be applied, but but the general and it's, I still think in the in the Ten Commandments the contrast there is that I've not brought you out to be slaves, but but citizens or children. Yeah. And. And the law is revealing the actual good that it's it's revealing what the created goods are for and how they are to be used appropriately and moderately within vocation. Yeah. So and, so that's and a, that uh, the bringing out the exodus continues to have um, uh, continues to have a, a kind of a power among the laws that are enacted, particularly those. Uh, for debtors and those who are indentured servants, um, that there are a bunch of these mini exoduses then that they're released (laughs) in the year of Jubilee or uh, in in the times where debts are forgiven. So, but, you know, it it is the relationship that God establishes in this kind of way that is to rule over how then they enact their own things in their own land. Right. Yeah. And you do have that very, that incredible emphasis and weight on the first table of the law in Exodus 20 compared to the second, mm. that the first table of the law requires a lot of explanation um, and, and theological interpretation that's provided, you know, by God through Moses and also tied directly to creation in the third commandment the six days of creation, and then, of course, the fourth commandment establishing the, the whole family thing. So, But when, in Deuteronomy, when you get all of the expansion of the rest of the commandments. Right, you do. You I do. mean, that, that's, uh, like, that's how I read Deuteronomy. Like, he's now commenting on the rest, and then right. you get Jesus no, right. doing a new Deuteronomy in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, yeah. But the, in terms of the kind of constitution, right, the kind of just base thing— uh, you know, being the sort of most foundational document to have the order of creation right in it hmm. is really, I think, significant. And, um, and yeah. So anyway, when Jesus cites this, right, that this is, this is the foundation of all of the law and the prophets, right? This is that, you know, God is actually lawful, that he is just, that he is righteous, and that he's proceeding in an orderly manner, and it's not a new idea, right? This this existed before the fall, and it and it still exists because this is his will, and this is the essence of his goodness, because the goodness of God is not lawless. Sometimes we've you know uh, spoken about the law as though you know the law were the alien will of God, hmm. rather than you know uh, his wrath being the alien will. And so the law itself is good and upholds what's good and gives us what's good. And without it, there's nothing. So there is also the, the necessary logical progression from law to gospel also. Right. So it sounds like what you're saying is the 10 commandments as the constitutional monarchy, uh, 
not only establishes the inheritance, but then also safeguards and protects it. Right. Okay. So that's the first half of this reading. The second half focuses on who the Christ is. And so so how do how do these both of these things kind of dovetail together? Is there a connection? Uh, there's multiple connections. I mean, so first of all, I think we should just kind of recognize that the whole thing's a bit of a setup in that, right, this, has, this is happening. They've been calling him son of David, right, on Palm Sunday very explicitly. And so like when he goes into this, right, how is it then that David's uh, son is also David's Lord? He, he's making a very explicit claim. They know about himself, mm-hmm. right? He kind of he, he sort of backed them into this corner uh, with this question, and you know made this claim for himself that just that's it shuts them up. I mean, they don't even try to argue with him because it's just too clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the only response is, "Well, let's kill him." So there there is kind of a setup where also I think yeah the 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 other two their two questions were fake, right? The question about the resurrection was not a sincere question. It's they're just playing games, okay. right? They, they they think they've tricked him. Ha! Huh? See how stupid your resurrection doctrine is. It obviously is false. Then even the in, in Matthew, the way it's presented, it is different than the others. But right, this is a question to test him, to tempt him. What is the greatest commandment? Um, it doesn't go the way they're expecting, right? Mm-hmm. He gives he gives a good answer. They can't really answer it. I don't think. Again, it's different than the others. But here, I don't think they really quite foresee the answer. Um, you know, they're thinking whatever he picks, they can pick apart, you know, yeah. one, pick one of the 680 commandments and we'll find how it's not a good enough answer. And then he just, he goes for this beautiful and biblical summary that just cuts to it. And there's like, yeah, we can't really dispute that. So they've been shut up by their attempts, both, mm-hmm. both of them. And then he goes to right. What do you think about the Christ? This is a sincere question and the question that actually matters. And also the inevitable question that there is this, the way that he answers the law question, right? What's the greatest commandment actually leads directly to Christology because the two tables are Christological, right? That yeah. uh, they, they reflect the two natures and his fulfillment of both halves of these is the most messianic kind of thing, right? So, so he kind of, it's, it is inevitable. It is the necessary conclusion. It is the right thing, right? And then you can also see how, I mean, he is the fulfillment of this in obedience and faith to his father, that he loves God with everything, right? He doesn't doubt God, his father's goodness, even in the midst of the most wicked things and the most the greatest injustices. And then also at the same time, it's perfect love towards his neighbor that he holds nothing back. Mm-hmm. So then is, is this part of the doctrine, the Christology? I mean, that's a, that's a, you know, in terms of the kind of fivefold use, right? That seems one of the most obvious things to sort of, to preach on the two natures, to preach on the two natures as the fulfillment of the two tables to show how Christ is this absolute embodiment. So, you know, we often talk about fulfillment. That's starting to dissatisfy me of late. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, not this, of course, it's obviously true. I'm, I'm not, but I wonder if fulfillment's a little bit by itself is a little too shallow, right? It's not just that he does what he's supposed to do. I mean, he is who he is, and the fulfillment comes naturally. 
Yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense, but yeah. this is, he's, so it's when not like he's just keeping the rules. Yeah. yeah. When you stay in body, it's kind of like he is the, the walking, talking, living, breathing, uh, fulfillment of these things. Right. This is his will, right? The yeah. law is not just, it's not rules. I mean, it is in a sense, but it's, you know, the 10 commandments aren't rules for us to follow. And then, you know, just simply, I mean, not they're not just simply to show us our sins and to mm-hmm. show us our lack or our need for a savior. They're actually, right, in showing us what is good and what the father's will is, they're showing us what love is Mm. And they're showing us the heart of the Father, which is fulfilled in the Son, who right just embodies this. So, so it is. I in love essence, this connection. Like the training in righteousness here, and the correction is like Jesus as example. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Jesus is absolutely example, right? And an example that we're see. I think too, like sometimes we've heard that, misheard that, like example, as though that was somehow burden. Right. No, this is the example. This is what we want to be like. Mm-hmm. Like we're thrilled to be in his presence and to see him doing these things. And we want to try to do them ourselves. We want to be involved mm-hmm. like children. I mean, you know, this, that wood chopping example, but right. We, we're glad to be part of this. This isn't a burden. So, so we, yeah. I, by Jesus asking this question, how is he fulfilling the two greatest uh, statements of the law? By asking the question, what do you think about the Christ? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think he's what he's doing is he's demonstrating that uh, that if we're not thinking about the Christ when we're answering the question, what is the greatest commandment, we're not reading the Bible rightly, mm. right? Because all of Scripture testifies of him. So it's, you know, you ask what's the greatest commandment. Okay, that's a legit question. Jesus gives it a valid and dignified response. He takes it seriously, even if they're insincere. Mm-hmm. But then he also kind of pulls out this hermeneutical principle that this better be Christological or it's meaningless, right? Yeah. All of the scriptures testify of him. So yeah, well, let's keep thinking. This isn't like he changes the topic. Right. I, I think he, right. It's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're talking about the law. That means we're talking about the Christ, right? How is this related? There's two tables of the law. There's two natures of Christ. He's David's son, right? Second table, but he's also David's Lord. And how do these things come together as love of both God and neighbor and obedience and fulfillment and goodness and salvation ultimately, right? So is this a Matthew's version of John 1? Oh, interesting. I mean, I... I mean, not to pit the uh, evangelists (laughs) against each other, but, you know, I mean, they bring up similar themes in different ways. You know, John just begins, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, yeah. And we have beheld his glory. Uh, it, does Matthew portray it in such a way that it just, it, it, he doesn't make the overarching statement. He just lets it come out as you yeah, see like the Christ living. Uh, John, you know, writing last says, yeah, okay, well, that's because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. <laughs> well, right. I like it. I like it. I, I like too this idea then that, right, the ultimate love of neighbor as self right, for, for the second person of the Holy Trinity, is to become a man, right? I mean, the incarnation is, and it isn't just he's willing to die for us. I mean, he became one of us. Mm, That's yeah. how he loves us as himself. And then, of course, brings us into himself, you know, in the Holy Communion. Yeah, the word became flesh, sure. I think, I mean, that, that is a, that's an interesting um, kind of light to shine on this 
which I never would have thought of, I don't think. But I, I like that to use to shine John one on this is a good idea. Do you bring in then the Athanasian Creed? You know, the part well, where you know he not by uh, you know changing the divinity and the humanity, but taking up the humanity into God. Right, right, sure. I mean, it's endless, right? I mean, you could get into the communication of attributes. You can talk about the state of, you know, humiliation and exaltation. I mean, it's, I mean, you know, all of our Christology is centered on the question, uh, how is it that that David's son is David's Lord, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so all the Christological kinds of goodness and distinctions are appropriate here, I would say. Yeah, I mean, also you could preach on, of course, the three uses of the law, the proper distinction between law and gospel. There, the text does move in a very real sense from law to gospel. I mean, that's a bit overly simplistic, but I mean, what is the greatest commandment is a law question, and what do you think of the Christ? In some sense, is a gospel, you know, question. So, I mean, you've got that kind of thing mm-hmm. built right into the text as well. Uh, his use of scripture. Right, I mean, it's it's this is great, right? Jesus, right, is quoting Deuteronomy six here, and then the Leviticus passage, um, you know, is to answer. So he doesn't just come up with his own summary of the two tables, uh, and you do have, you know, here he says here, right, on these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. You can have some fun with that, but uh, in I think it's Mark's version, you know, the scribe is more of a hero. It's an individual scribe. And he responds by saying back to Jesus, right? He, he repeats it. It's like, yeah, you, he, good job, Jesus. You've spoken well. There's only one God, and you're supposed to love him with all your heart, and you're supposed to love your neighbors yourself. And then he says, what is it? Something to the effect of, uh, this is more than all of the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Right. And then Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So, I mean, there is this... Um, elevation of the law's spiritual use and the heart of the law not being in the ceremonies but in the in love of course that scribes not quite in the kingdom of god because he doesn't recognize that jesus is the actual embodiment of this who's going to lay down his life but mm-hmm. so but when his use have- of scriptures yeah, yeah, this is of course Psalm 118 also, by the way. Yeah. So when they ask what is the greatest, are they just asking in terms of the most important and is that how Jesus answers? Like when Jesus using the first and greatest, is he saying the great greatest in terms of importance or is he using greater greatness in a perhaps different sense? Like the the, the most all-encompassing, the the in that way, I mean, what? I, I mean, I, what's the difference between those two? I don't know. What do you mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the greatest here. I mean, I think it's kind of all of that. But yeah, I would say it's the. I mean, it's really kind of the summary or the in, in, encompassment of of the totality of it. The greatest commandment, that which all others are subsumed under. Which, of mm. course, it's the first commandment. Oh yeah, that was another thing I was going to say. I had written down that I I love this too. That the that you know this kind of phrasing of the first commandment in this way from Deuteronomy is it, it makes it very clearly about faith. Mm-hmm. So I mean, just in from Exodus twenty and from you know the other uh, place, it's just you, know, you shall have no other gods. Um, 
And then, I mean, Luther, right? You should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. That's really what Jesus is saying here, right? That his, some, that his not, you know, to, to have another God is to give part of your heart or part of your soul or part of your mind or part of your strength, right, to something else. And, uh, and that is to be lacking faith. Mm-hmm. That's so the an first opportunity awakening. then to talk about original sin, the inheritance. I mean, it could be, or yeah. or just the ways that were. I think, um, you know, what what uh, how sweeping the first commandment is, and you know what we're called to, and how how every sin is a violation of this, right? Even if it's you know whatever it is, you know, stealing from my stealing from the bank, you know, is a violation of it's not trusting in God, it's yeah. not fearing in God. So I mean, you know, this there, there's. Uh, I think uh, we do have a kind of tendency sometimes to try to minimize our sins as though they're victimless or yeah. whatever, you know, what, all the ways we justify things. But we, we do want to pretend like, well, I love God, but I just have this little problem with something else. But it doesn't have, it doesn't have anything to do with me not loving God. Or, you know, I never, you know, stop uh, being aware of God and that he's watching or these kinds of things. But yeah, you, I mean, then why do you act this way? So yeah, I think to talk about whether it's original sin, but also, you know, kind of actual sins, how our actual sins are always very insulting to God and dangerous, right? What's, what's going on is it's not innocuous. So I don't know what, you know, I always use the example with the children of, you know, why do they, so the mother says, clean your room. The kid goes in, half cleans his room, right, plays, and then, you know, doesn't get it done to standard, and then goes to dinner, and then the mother asks, did you clean your room? And he says, yes, even though he knows that he's going to get busted, right? I mean, like, there's, like, really, she's going to find out, because she's going to go in there after dinner and see, and then she's going to know he lied. And even though he's 100% aware that God knows he's lying, right, and that he's lying, so it's a stupid thing to, why would you lie? Well, we've all done it, right? We do it all the time. It's because we are stupid, because sin makes us stupid, because in that instant, we're more afraid of our mother's anger or disappointment or whatever than we are of God or of consequences, and we'll do stupidly kind of anything to delay it even for a few seconds, and that's right? That's just completely inordinate fear. It doesn't make any, it's not even, it's not rational at all. And, and to think that we're doing this right in the sight of God, full, you know, full blatantly, just willfully just lying when we know that he knows mm-hmm. what that means is we don't think, we don't think he's real, right? He's not really paying attention. He's far away or he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. What's, what's real is my mother and what she's going to do to me. And that's all I care about in the minute, the moment. There's nothing else. I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. It's blasphemous. And mm-hmm. that's what's happening. And that's what's happening kind of throughout, you know, our, right? Definitely, definitely. So, I mean, I think sometimes that kind of just, we, we need to recognize how bad our sins really are in, you know, we're pretending like, like we're not that bad and we're, you know, it's all just sort of innocent and we don't really mean it. And, you know, we have good intentions. No, we don't. Right. I mean, our, our intentions are just so selfish. Our, I mean, it's just that we're trying to whatever, avoid trouble, avoid pain, seek pleasure. I mean, we're not, these aren't good intentions. These are just pure selfishness, mm-hmm. but we, we delude ourselves. Right. 
Yeah. So I don't know that, that, that the sweeping, you know, this with all of your heart, right. With all, and then, I mean, love your neighbor as yourself. My goodness. What is How do you even do that? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, right. Well, I mean, we don't love our neighbors as ourselves. <laughs> We're not right. really capable of it. But the, you know, the other thing too, you know, you brought up the role of the law and its three uses in terms of the doctrine portion of the fivefold use. I think everyone kind of grasps the second use. Um, they understand the third use, uh, although they some may reject it, they still understand it. Yeah. Um, but I think perhaps maybe what needs to be discussed a little bit is the second use. I mean the thir- uh, the first use. First use, yeah. yeah. In in yeah. what in what way um, is the first and greatest commandment to be part of the first use of the law <laughs> in our land? Like, yeah. I mean, all of this discussion now about like Christian nationalism, things like that. Uh, none of this is left out. The government is there to establish order, and not just any order, God's order. Yeah. I think that's a great point. I, I, I hadn't thought of it. I, I think you're right. We, we're we not afraid of God's threat of punishment. We we expect to get off. The, well, we get away with a lot. <laughs> and, you know, so, I mean, you know, out of God's mercy, we do get away with it. And mm-hmm. so then, you know, that kind of Satan uses that to delude us. Oh, those threats aren't that serious. He actually loves you. He doesn't mind. And, of course, our, at, at, at a human level, we also have the kind of problem of, you know, our earthly authorities are just you know, we, it, it, both in our exercise of authority and in our subordination, we just see such weariness, right? We just cave into our children because we're sick of it and we just don't have the energy. I mean, we do, but right. So just let them have their way. It's easier than punishing them or disciplining mm-hmm. them. And, uh, you know, when we're, it's just so easy to be weak. I mean, right. I mean, this is, I mean, this is largely the problem that results in lack of ecclesiastical supervision. Yeah. You know, it's it's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I don't want to do it. I don't want to deal with my delinquent members. I don't want to deal with the brother in the circuit that's doing stuff he shouldn't. I'll pretend like I can't see it, right? I mean, that's no. I think you're right. I think that's first use. That's a first use. Those are first use transgressions. Yeah. So the the uh, you know, I'm sure my folks are probably tired of hearing me say it, but I guess I say it enough. Which is, you know, our choice isn't between what is good and what is evil. Usually. Or, um, you know, what is right and what is wrong. It's usually between what is good and what is right and what is easy. Yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's well put. I think, yeah, and that is we're just we we think we can do the easy thing because, right, we'll get away with it. Got there won't be any consequences. There won't be any punishment. Mm-hmm. So is this and an opportunity right. then to talk about the different kinds, the the way we distinguish sin, not just original and actual, but. Uh, commission and omission that a lot of are seeking the easy way is it just a sin of omission we just don't want to do it yeah that's really good yeah and then we and then we right and then all the excuse making and the pretending and there's also i think somewhat related you know this kind of uh running into god's hidden will in speculation as as an excuse for all sorts of things right that that uh, you, you have this sort of well you know I couldn't see into his heart so I couldn't tell you know 
I saw him out. I saw him at a restaurant with a woman who wasn't his wife, you know, and they were all dressed up and they were holding hands. But, you know, maybe it was a sister, you know, th- this kind of uh, uh, ridiculous, exaggerated pretend pretending of the keeping of the Eighth Commandment or uh, pretend looking into the sort of hidden will of God with, uh, yeah, you know, my my grown son is a homosexual, according to his own according to what he says and according to the fact that he's living with somebody and, and, and so forth. But I'm going to pretend like I can't tell and like he has faith deep down in his heart because, mm-hmm. you know, I think his, I think his, his heart is aligned with God. Just his life isn't. Yeah. You know, wh- what? I mean, that's, that's no, I mean, that's just wishful thinking and not that I'm trying to crush people's hopes, but I mean, let's put our hope in God's word and in his promises. And if you want to say, look, this kid was baptized and he's in God's hands and I'm, I'm waiting. It's not my job to decide if he goes to heaven or hell. True. Yeah. But it's, you are trying to decide when you go into these kinds of machine nations about what his heart really is. You know, what you've been given to do is to pray and to witness, to, you know, to admonish uh, and give counsel and warning. And so you do that and you let the chips fall where they will, and you trust in God to be good and to keep his promises. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so I'm not saying we, we, we say, we know your kid's going to hell because we, right. But we're also not going to say and make up excuses and pretend like these other things aren't real and aren't real signs yeah. as though he would have faith in his heart that has no evidence in his life. Right. There is so, a push today to create a kind of a new category of sin, which is the sin of noticing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, how dare you notice that that is happening or how dare right. you see that, you know, it's better to not see it. Um, right. And, and then it all gets the, the tables all get kind of turned like, uh, what's wrong with you that you noticed it? Uh, yeah. Obviously, your heart is in the wrong place. And it just becomes <laughs> this great pointing of fingers like, uh, wait, I'm just saying what God said. Uh, why are you saying it's a sin for noticing this? <laughs> right. Well, I, I, we could add to that the sin of pure doctrine, right? That uh, so, so the problem is that, that you think that doctrine actually matters, but in fact, don't you know that doctrine is actually a hindrance to uh, bringing people into the kingdom? Right. Right, so it's like you're you're getting hung up on the details, right? You're 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 making a, a mountain out of a molehill by you know noticing that homosexuality is wrong, and then and then going by the Bible instead of trying to invite people, right? Yeah. In fact, the next person that tells me that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar, uh, that's yeah. So whenever people say this to me, <laughs> uh, yeah, it just I mean what what they mean is right. Doctrine is vinegar. Right or the law, God's law is not good. It's vinegar. It's nasty. It's 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 abrasive. It's not, it's not what actually attracts flies, mm-hmm. right? Whereas, and it's like, wait a minute, you know, the, uh, our job is not to attract flies, right? Our job is to actually tell the truth. And, and again, that's you know, a sin of omission. That's it is. It's this, it's this of wanting or distracting right. ourselves with something else or becoming indifferent towards God's word yeah. in such a way that. We just make up our own rules. Right. Well, and then we blame doctrine. We're blaming God's word for not being very good at doing its job. 
right? right? We can we can do I can do better than the Bible, right? The Bible's got all these rules in it, you know, that are that are a hindrance, right? I can do better than God. I can be nicer because yeah. I can move out. I can take out the vinegar. This is and where we've got to get them to say it out loud. Like we've got, yeah, so yeah. it just sounds complete. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is <laughs> that you can do better than God's word. That's right. That can't, that can't right. be right. Did, I, I didn't get that right. Tell me what you really meant. <laughs> well, I mean, we're all tempted towards this. Of course we want to look the other way because we don't want there to be conflict at the family table, right? Or at the Winkle or wherever, right? We, or, in our, or at the parish level too. I mean, we're all, it's, it's a, it is a temptation and it is a lot of pressure toward it. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah I, that's a good insight. You're right about that. It, that's, that really is more of a, we just, we just don't really think God will punish us. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a kind of a, it's again, a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's part of the antinomianism, part of the abuse of the gospel and taking the gospel for granted is to assume it's no big deal for God to forgive our sins. And he doesn't really mind it is. That's a blasphemous idea. Or even to add to that, to desire for the laws of our country to reflect the first and second tables yeah. of the law to a certain extent. Like we imagine that we'd rather have a secular place instead of our government, um, you know, which we we think or we lie to ourselves that secular means neutral when we know that it's anti-Christian right. and anti-biblical. Uh but we lie to ourselves thinking that would be better than for us to have an actual godly Christian ruler and rulers who say, no, we're not going to do these things because that goes against God's immutable will. Yeah. We could, we should just, we should make it compile a list of stupid and harmful things that Luther said and that became kind of Lutheranisms, right? That we just sort of now everybody repeats it. As though, because it, it, it lets us off the hook of something. I mean, one of those would be, you know, Luther's remark about rather having a Turkish prince than an yeah. incompetent Christian prince. Yeah, right? but we as can't though even a Turkish find where it is. <laughs> we I, can't. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, uh, I think Grobin did a whole paper on this. Like, yeah, we can't find where oh. this quotation actually is. Oh, that's hilarious! I'll have to. I don't. I didn't know that. See, it's. A, I just was repeating it myself. Uh, I don't say I don't even, uh, but yeah, that, that I mean, it does get cited a lot in you know conversation, and it is a, I mean, if Luther did say it, he was just wrong. I mean, not that we want incompetent princes, but to but to have this idea that somehow a Turkish prince is going to be an aid to godliness and to Christianity, and right as though his violations of the first table of the law have no bearing on the second, is is a crazy idea. Yeah, um, definitely. I mean, I, there, I mean to be sure, right? If you have a a non Christian prince who is posing as a Christian prince, right? If you have a hypocrite, that's that's probably the deadliest kind of thing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'll have to I'll have to follow up on that. I've heard of this Grobean guy. I will. Uh, <laughs> You'll probably see him soon. I um, might see him soon. I I should find out because I would. That's uh, that's hilarious. It may uh, not be a real quote. Yeah, well, that was the sense he gave a symposium paper uh, a few years back now about like civil government and Christian rulers, I'm pretty sure. And he brings this quotation up and he's like, you know, we can't even find where this is. Um, oh, I love so it. let's just stop quoting it. 
think that was the, <laughs> right, the essence of his his first paper. And then he talks about really, you know, how ethics and you know the rule of law that is the government actually has a role in this. So it's not just that politics is downstream Good. from culture, but you know, politics can actually help to engender or cultivate culture. Yeah, yeah, of course, obviously. I mean, yeah. who could dispute that? Yeah. So, I mean, that was the essence. Again, this was a okay. number of years ago, so I can't remember or recall all of his points, but that was the the gist that I took away. All right, good. Thank you for that. So, what are you going to preach on? Do you have well, any? Well, I did have. I got. I do have uh, one. I thought I had a couple of consoling things, but now I can't find them. In my scribbled notes. I, I was going to. I think. Uh, there's consolation in this in that actually Jesus directing us to think about him, to think about Christology. Uh, and I like that this that he directs us to think about Christology rather than to think about justification, I think is mm. kind of interesting. Right. He doesn't he doesn't say, right, so you ask the they ask the law question, what's the greatest commandment? And I mean, I think if you were gonna ask, you know, most of us, right, what's the kind of corresponding gospel question, we might be tempted to say something like, you know, uh, how is it that we're saved? Or how is it that we're justified? Or what is the, you know, how is it that our sins are atoned? And uh, he goes actually right for the two natures. So this Mm -hmm. contemplation of the person of Christ is is consoling, right? He's directing us. That is the gospel in a sense. Well, because it is the embodiment of the entire law. Right, right. So I, I think that's, it's, there is a certain sense in which justification is a doctrine, and at some level, it's sort of an abstraction. Um, I mean, I, that sounds too harsh, but but I think it's true. It's but whereas the person of Christ is not an abstraction, right? The the one who justifies us yeah. by his actions. So, well, he's not I, I, talking I, about it in terms of like ideological propositions. He's saying that this right. is actually life and to be lived. Right. Right. It is life itself. Anyway, so, no, so I, think that's I mean, great, to, a great point. to recognize that. The, uh, I think just in terms of preaching, just general advice for preaching that, and in a text like this, you know, I think we can sometimes come at this and be like, oh, this is very straightforward. Um, it's not interesting or profound enough. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we, we need to resist that with uh, uh, preachers, with every fiber of their being. Don't mm. try to be profound. Don't try to be clever, and don't try to be profound. Yeah, and I love to point this out. One, one of Walther's best sermons is this Christmas Eve sermon that he preaches. It's in the Selected Sermons volume. And the, his thesis is, heaven is now open. <laughs> and that's it. Like you know, Jesus is born, and that means now that heaven's accessible to us. Mm-hmm. That's his thesis. It's not, it's not a profound—I mean, I mean, some level it's profound. But, I mean, it's not like— Right. Every Christian already knows this. I mean, this is, you know, all he's saying is just very straightforward, right? What, what we, every Sunday school student knows. And yet that is a, a just a beautiful sermon. You, you couldn't do better. And I think that it's a great lesson for us to learn. Don't try to be profound. Don't to be clever. So look, this, you could preach this in a very simple, straightforward way, right? That, and, and don't try to, the people will appreciate it. They'll be fed by it. Does that mm-hmm. make no, so, that's great. I think especially when you get to texts that, well, I mean, maybe and maybe I'm revealing too much of my own heart, right? But I'm tempted by this text to be bored by it. 
because it just does seem like, oh, this is just the old law gospel thing. This is, I've preached on this a million times. There's nothing more to say. Okay, maybe there isn't. Yeah, I mean, just a, that, obviously that's not true, but you know what I mean. Just let it go. Same thing I would say for like, you know, any kind of big events, Christmas Eve, Easter. You, you, Walther's a great example on this. Yeah. There is a, there is a, um, a sense in which when we come to the text, um, you know, we shouldn't, we shouldn't come with like that, you know, the prepared answers already. Like we should just let yeah. it work on us a little bit. Um, yeah. And, and dare to ask questions of it. Like right. Not be silenced, but dare to ask the question the way Mary does, not the way Zacharias does. Right. And if the right. answer like is Mary simple. Mary is like, how can this be? She wants to know more. Zacharias, yeah. his question is like, there's no way. Like he, right. he wants to right. shut this down. And the way we should approach the text is like, how can this be? Like, I want to delve into this. Give, you know, help me understand. Um, and too often we just kind of, as you said, are bored with what's right in front of us instead of being curious. Right. Or because the question and answer maybe seems obvious, we're, we're afraid it's going to be not interesting or not insightful. But if you actually just try to unpack this, just, okay, just talk about the fact that heaven's open for 25 minutes. I mean, that's all Walther does. And it's just astoundingly beautiful and comforting. And even if, even if it's, it, it, it seems as though it's very obvious, but then as he begins just talking about this, it's very comforting and very insightful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. And so that's because he's not, about, he's not ashamed of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's so helpful about like some of the Chronicles of Narnia stuff. He puts like narrative to it that really opens up. I mean, like what comes to mind for me in discussion about the incarnation is that interchange in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, when Aslan has awakened all of the, he's already risen from the dead and he awakens all of the stone statues. Yeah. And then they have to go and fight the battle. And he says to the other lions, the leopards, he says, uh, you know, you need to carry some of these people uh, because us lions are the fastest. And so we need to carry them and be up front. And the one leopard is just like leaping around saying, did you hear that? He said, us lions. Like, yeah. And so often we just don't even think about like for us men and for our salvation. He just said us men. Yeah. He does that to John the Baptist too. Yeah. Right. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Really? <laughs> What's John got to do with that? <laughs> But I mean, it's a, it's remarkable. No, I, I I think that's right. Yeah, for us, for us men, and for ourselves, it is a beautiful thing to. Uh, it's 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 a humbling and yet empowering. I love that scene too. So they, it always seems like when G, when when Jesus, you know, is talking to the Pharisees about, you know, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? You know, like he's. It immediately seems like he's one upping them. And in some ways, yes, like he's drawing out their, or, or, or calling attention their pride and their arrogance. But at the same time, like this is actually an invitation to consider the really important things. Yeah, and even well, to I do think, it with him, like he he's yes. he's not saying like you know put that in your pipe and smoke it, or you know how, how do you like them apples? He's like, let's talk about this. 
And yeah. so often we we view those kinds of things, even when we hear it from you know pastors or uh, or other pastors, like we don't we see it as a competition instead of an invitation to dwell upon these things together. Yeah, I think that's really good. Yeah, it's not a it's not a quiz. He's not testing them. They're right. testing him. But he, he's actually asking them sincerely, right? Yeah. What does it seem to you uh, 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 that, that, that's going on here? And uh, yeah, inviting them to actually enter into the mystery, contemplate, speak. The Well, I do think, though, there is this where, you know, they do have this problem of they've been trying to pretend as though you could be the Messiah but not be divine. Mm. I mean, because that is going to be kind of the charge Right, that Caiaphas is going to bring the the they 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 do seem to have a, a misunderstanding of of the necessary divine nature of the Messiah, but I agree. But I but you're right that uh, so I mean I do I do think that's the emphasis, right? Sure. Um, but but I think you're absolutely right that he is right. In fact, you know that word is uh, what does it say? How does it? I'm not looking at it in Greek, but I thought I thought it uses dokeo here. It does. Oh yeah, it, 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 forty-two. Yeah, right. What? What? It, this is translated as "What do you think?" But I mean, I, I would translate it that like it. Right. What does it seem to you? It, it is. It is a little bit gentler. Um, a kind of. It, it's more inviting. It's not. A, it's not. It, it's going to decide like what's the answer to this question, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's yeah, like I, an I think, invitation yeah. to discuss. It is. Yeah. It's, it's an like, invitation to discuss. Yeah. Like they have. Like they have something here. to say. <laughs> Yeah, well, but Socrates is kind of nasty. I, the, you know, Socrates is. is insulting. I don't blame him for killing. No, I can't say that on here. But uh, the he's annoying. Whereas Jesus is, he is really like he's respecting their ability to think about these things and to talk about them, and he wants them to. Yeah, and their silence is a is a total failure on their part. Yeah, but I, I mean, mean, look look how nice he is. In the sense key. that he knows. I mean, oh, Jesus yeah, I know. knows sure. where he's going, and he's trying to draw this out of them. Um, but yeah, Socrates is a jerk uh, about yeah, many yeah. of these things. But, but you I can think, think about Jesus with Nicodemus. With Nicodemus, I mean, even though he's kind of stern with Nicodemus, I mean, he does put up with it. He does let Nicodemus talk, right? Yeah, he's not. He's not showing off. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, he's not trying to be pedantic. <laughs> yeah, Jesus doesn't show off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what are you going to look at? How are you going to? How are you going to preach this? You think? Well, you got me thinking about this first use thing. I like that. I think. I think I might go that way. I wrote that down. I don't know when I've last. I don't know if I've almost ever. Maybe I've never preached about first use. Really, mm-hmm. I, I think you know. I've I've talked about first use. You know, in like catechetical situations, quite a bit. I, I'm sure I've listed first use in sermons. But I don't know if I've ever really gone after how we how we are guilty of not actually paying attention or believing the threats of God. Yeah. So I don't know. What are you thinking? I don't know. I think I I kind of want to go the the Jesus is the an example to imitate and bring all of those things together, like John one three uses Christology, kind of just bring that all together in some way. I know it's big, but that, you know, that focusing our eyes on Jesus is not just uh, to the point of your sins are forgiven you, 
but for the whole of life that we're, we're, we're seeking to embody this just as he did. There you go. But that is, that, that might change. I, I might. Like, yeah, I know. I, I might like get there. I did see that you did do the gates. So that was good. I did. Yeah. And I think, uh, that was a draft. I put, I, I, I was, it, did, it turned out pretty good. I think, I think it, it was better than the draft I put up, but it was fun. And I think it, uh, so anyway, I was, I'm glad you pushed me on it and I'm forced. I, I might've wimped out, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of glad I sort of had this, uh, felt like I had this gauntlet thrown down. So that yeah. was good. Well, that's for that's me. What I do good. every once in a while. Just trying to there throw down go. the gauntlets. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Take care.